Hello and welcome to the Open Cloud Infrastructure Podcast coming to you from the studio shed where the raindrops keep falling on the metal roof. I'm your host Sasha Siegman and today is Friday, March 3rd, 2023 and this is episode 5 with these topics. The on-prem cloud has its moment. Cloud native security with Apple security engineer Emily Fox. How long does it take to spin up a Kubernetes cluster on a cloud provider from scratch? And some listener feedback from the podcast and YouTube channel. The on-prem cloud has its moment. I talked about it in episode three. There is an interest in figuring out how to avoid huge cloud builds and if there's a way to run workloads that makes sense locally. There are some clear low-hanging fruits like storage that causes a lot of charges for outbound traffic or AI workloads that are CPU intensive and require expensive instances. So when I came across this article, are companies shifting away from public clouds on Stack Overflow? I was intrigued. What do the good folks at Stack Overflow think about this? And by the way, they have an excellent podcast. You should listen to it if you don't already do. Go find it in the show notes or head over to stackoverflow.blog slash podcast. Well, one statement really caught my attention, and that's because I'm a sucker for big iron. I started my career on mainframes, and here's the quote from Asanka Abe-Singe, chief tech evangelist at WSO2. Quote, there is a realization, especially at organizations with a lot of legacy hardware infrastructure, that they now have a lot of machinery sitting idle. If you are a big bank with decades of mainframes at your disposal, utilizing only 5% of that doesn't make much sense. Kubernetes lets you run a private cloud that better utilizes your existing on-prem hardware. Now, that makes a lot of sense to me. Imagine you had a large mainframe that some folks in your company will gladly tell you is obsolete, outdated, a dinosaur, or a thing from the past. I will tell you I fundamentally disagree. A mainframe is essentially a shell waiting for a cloud to run on it, unless you're already doing that. It's much more reliable than a standard PC, pretty much never goes down, scales linear, provides predictable performance, has some reliable, super reliable storage, and many more advantages over building your own physical cloud platform. Imagine if you took that investment you made years ago into a mainframe and now put Kubernetes on it, giving you the best possible utilization of your hardware. And it's even portable. You're not stuck with running on your mainframe. You can move workloads around if you have to. OpenShift, for example, runs on all public clouds, Google, Microsoft, Azure, IBM Cloud, Oracle, DigitalOcean, if you self-deploy, and anywhere where you can install your own operating systems. If you run OpenShift on your mainframe, you have your cloud that can step up to the plate and take Amazon's lunch money. What about companies that don't have a mainframe? Well, let's look at this quote from Vijay Raghavendra, Chief Technology Officer at Symphony AI, who works with grocery chain Albertsons. Quote, the on-prem trend is growing among big box and grocery retailers that need to feed product, distribution and store specific data into large machine learning models for inventory predictions. End quote. Well, how about that? If you have a ML requirement, maybe running these on-premise makes financial and operational sense. Not only do you save money, but you also get better quality and more data out of your data. 
But don't just take it from me, please. A 2022 report by Bessemer Ventures states a significant uptick in the adoption of virtual private clouds. Quote, it is becoming easier to package SaaS products and deploy them inside a customer's virtual private cloud, VPC. This is due in part to the standardization around Kubernetes as the operating system of the cloud. This makes it easier for SaaS companies to serve a wider range of customers that may prefer to keep certain sensitive data or applications in a VPC. Cloud-native security. I work in the security space at IBM and mostly deal with what I call, quote, traditional security on the infrastructure level. But Kubernetes security is an entirely different beast altogether. Why is it so different? It's because the whole stack needs to be looked at, not just the application layer 7. Yes, mostly Kubernetes communicates via API on layer 7, pretty much all the magic happens there, but there's still the network layer. There's still the unsolved question of trustworthy build pipelines using public images and many more issues. So where do you even start? Apple's security engineer Emily Fox answers the how do I get started in security question with an honest, well, it depends. Listen to what she says about getting started in cloud-native security on the Google Kubernetes podcast. If you're looking to get into security, where do you tell people to start? And just like a engineer would usually say, it depends. Um, <laughs> I hate to use that term in this context, but it really does. Usually when people approach me about like, I'm interested in security or I'm starting my career in security, what should I focus on? What should I learn? It depends on what they're interested in. Security has two primary areas of focus. There's more of the offensive side, which is doing the penetration testing, kind of doing detection engineering and, and response threat intel, those kinds of things. And then there's more of the design and the architecture and the strategic thinking around how do you secure an entire enterprise using cloud native technologies or using whatever technologies work for your use case. It could be you could still have a data center. And you can still do these. From there, the next thing I will say is go read your history. You can learn so much about the security failings and successes of the past and how technology has matured and developed over time. And this is more of a non-traditional route. But as we continue to move forward in technology innovation and build layers of abstraction upon abstraction from previous innovation, like Kubernetes is a really good example of this, we start to lose the fundamental understanding of everything under the covers. Yeah. And that's where our attackers are getting more successful, moving further upstream, moving further down the stack, because layer seven is getting really easy to attack, but also really secure really quickly. Yeah. So they're going to start looking for those more archaic, more difficult to understand technologies. And if you as a security professional getting into the industry understand how well that stuff works, we're going to be wildly successful, regardless if you become a penetration tester or if you become a security architect. Doesn't matter. That information is still useful. Like she just said, and if you understand all how all of that stuff works, you're going to be wildly successful. Uh, wait a minute. Didn't she 
did what she just said totally align with our approach to look at everything from the ground up? I think so. And I think I need to invite her to be on the podcast so we can lay some groundwork for, for you all and get started with the basics in cloud native security. You can hear more from Emily on the Google Cloud podcast. How long does it take to spin up a Kubernetes cluster on a cloud provider from scratch? So let me be honest here and start out by saying, creating a Kubernetes cluster in our lab will take far, far longer than even the slowest cloud provider takes to create a cluster. But how quickly can AWS, Azure, or Google actually get a Kubernetes cluster ready for you? Well, Symbiosis took 1.66 minutes, Azure 4.48 minutes, Google 5.12 minutes, and AWS 18.8 minutes. Fear not, Symbiosis has obviously figured it out. It's just a coincidence that their distribution comes out as the fastest one, I am sure. Just kidding. But look at that laggard AWS. Why is it taking AWS four times longer than Azure, which is two times slower than Symbiosis? It's an excellent question, but nothing in the blog post gives us a hint. It's possible their internal brokers are so busy trying to find placement that most of this is actually uh, waiting time for free hardware. But then again, it could also be that they're just slow. If anyone knows, please do tell me. Listener feedback from the podcast and YouTube. I absolutely love listener feedback and it's really nice to hear from you. Thank you to Hannah in Oregon who writes, I was going through Apple Podcasts yesterday looking for cloud and OpenShift content when I discovered the Open Cloud Infrastructure Podcast, which has valuable content. I'm listening to an episode about running databases on containers. Congrats, end quote. Thank you, Hannah. And here's a question from my YouTube channel, from Oscar Lerena. Thanks a lot for your video. I would like to ask you for some directions. I was inspired by your setup to start buying a small scale, similar one to implement my home lab. But a friend working in DevOps uh, asked me a question of why not do this on cloud. I replied that on cloud, I will have to pay monthly tens of dollars for the computing, RAM and disk space that I'm targeting for my projects. And he replied that I will have to continuously invest on hardware too, as my computational needs will increment in the future. What do you think? Thanks in advance. Here's what I think, Oscar. Um, personal labs aren't used for benchmarking or for performance testing. At least that's not what I do in my lab. The majority of lab work consists of figuring stuff out like networking, storage setup, and general compute tasks, like installing operating system virtualization or application stacks. None of that is really time sensitive. And in fact, my hardware is really old already. The G7s came out in 2010 and my machines are roughly 10 years old. My G8s are a little younger, but essentially obsolete machines for production. But they still work, they still run fine, they still provide me with a super cheap opportunity to play and get stuff working. I don't upgrade them because there's no more need to do that. I don't think you'll need to continuously upgrade your lab. A one-time buy should last you many years. Thanks for your question, though. Keep them coming. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. I appreciate your time and check back in two weeks for another episode of Open Cloud Infrastructure. If you like this show, recommend it to a friend. Follow me on Mastodon as ssigman at Infosec Exchange. The show's homepage is at sigman.cloud. Head over to my YouTube channel where you can check out the installation videos and how I set up my lab. Hop on over to YouTube and find me as at OpenCloud Infrastructure. 
The music in this program is licensed from Audio Jungle. See you soon!